Please note that the information in this podcast may be outdated. For the most current and accurate information, refer to our website, BACB.com. Welcome to Inside the BACB, the official podcast of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. In this episode, Drs. Tyra Sellers, Sarah Lichtenberger, and Holly Senyuk discuss the mission and structure of the BACB's ethics department, what it does and how it does it, while also offering several ethics resources for certificates. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inside the BACB. Today, we're going to talk about the ethics department. Before we get started with a little introduction about the ethics department for you all, I'd like to introduce myself as well as the people that are here with me today. I'm Dr. Tyra Sellers, and I am the director of ethics, and I have with me... Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Lichtenberger, and I am the ethics educational manager. And I'm Dr. Holly Senyak, and I am the ethics disciplinary manager. I'm pretty excited to talk to everybody about the ethics department. Today, I think what we're going to do is provide a little introduction to the purpose of the ethics department, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the structure of the ethics department, ways that individuals might interact with us, and it'll give you a chance to share some information about both of your systems, the educational system and the disciplinary system. Well, I'll kick us off and get um, us started with a brief description of the purpose of the ethics department here at the BACB. The critical function of the BACB's ethics department is really an extension of the BACB's mission to protect consumers. We report information about ethics violations by BACB certificants on our website, as well as communicate that information to entities that regulate behavior analytic practice like licensure boards. One important point to keep in mind is that the BACB's disciplinary umbrella is really limited to those individuals who hold our certifications and who have submitted a full application. So when you hear us talk about jurisdiction throughout the podcast, that's what we're referring to. And we manage some of the other ethics requirements that end up on the webpage around certificate information or supports around how to report and when to report and things like that. So there are a couple of different ways that people might get information to the BACB. And the first way is that people might report information about themselves. So I'm sure Sarah and Holly, when you have had to recertify, um, you know that there are questions that you have to answer, including whether or not you have any convictions or investigations or things like that, right? Yep. And so not only do self-reports occur at that point when someone is applying or recertifying, but at any point that an individual becomes aware of anything that requires self-reporting as outlined in the Professional and Ethical Compliance Code for Behavior Analysts or in the code for RBTs, they need to self-report to us providing information that's relevant to whatever the situation might be. We are excited that we have a resource on the website, which is the considerations for self-reporting document and can be used when Um, An individual is in a situation where they feel that they may need to uh, self-report an investigation or another scenario um, to the BACB. Yeah, so that's a pretty cool document because it has all of the information from two different newsletters all housed in one place. And you can use it as sort of a self-checklist. 
So outside of self-reporting, there are a couple of other ways that individuals can get information to us about potential ethical violations. Um, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about the publicly documented notices of alleged violation that come in? Sure. And so one of the new ways that you can uh, report a violation is if something is uh, can be found publicly available on the internet um, or other forms of media. And then one piece with that is that since you are anonymously submitting it, you're not going to be updated on the process of that particular violation. But it does allow for people to submit if they see something when they're online or again in other parts of media that are accessible to the public. So just to clarify, Sarah, what if something was posted in a in a closed Facebook group? That's a great question. So that would not be considered publicly available because you have to be part of that group in order to see it. Uh, got it. So would things like publicly available court documents or news articles mm -hmm. or um, things posted on public websites that are outward facing, those would all be available? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. And then you also clarified that that means that if I were to submit a notice using that mechanism and I had some public documentation, would I hear back from the BACB? No, you wouldn't. It is submitted anonymously, so we won't know who submits it to us. And in return, you won't get any uh, updates on what happens with that case. Okay, great. Thanks for that clarification. That actually brings up another point about um, the next two reporting mechanisms, which are ways to report against either an RBT or a BCABA or BCBA. But before we jump into how that works, I just want to clarify for listeners that um, we have jurisdiction over individuals once they're certified. And when it comes to notices of alleged violation, except for those submitted through the publicly documented alleged violation mechanism, we owe those individuals due process. And due process means, it's sort of comp composed of a few different parts. Due process means that we um, need to let the subject know that there's been a notice submitted against them. We have to let them know who submitted that notice. We have to give them the information that was submitted so they see all of the documentation that the notifier supplies to us. And then they're provided an opportunity to respond. So it is really important for folks to know that outside of that publicly documented mechanism that Sarah just reviewed, if you do submit a notice of alleged violation, the information will be shared with the subject of that notice. So Holly, do you want to talk a little bit about the two ways that people can submit notices of alleged violation, either against an RBT or against a BCABA or BCBA? Sure. So through our website, individuals can submit what we call a notice of alleged violation. And you might hear us refer to it from here on out as just a notice. Um, but what that means is that they are alleging that a certificate or applicant has violated the code in some way. And so if you are in a situation where you believe that one of those individuals has violated the code and you've tried to work it out with them directly, as is outlined in our code, um, but that hasn't been effective and you are ready to submit a notice to us, you can do so through our website. And there is a really helpful document on there that's called the Considerations for Submitting a Notice of Alleged Violation. So handy. I know. And we even have visual diagrams to help. So it provides a lot of information on 
both how to go through the process of submitting that, as well as uh, things that you should take into consideration when you are submitting that. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I think another thing to point out is that those both of those reporting mechanisms require supporting documentation, whether or not that's uh, a statement from the person submitting the notice or it's other some other sort of documentation, email, correspondence, screenshots, things like that. And um, Holly, how do people make that information available when they're submitting their notice? So there is a spot when they're filling out the form where they can upload that sort of documentation. Um, and I just want, so I want to take this opportunity to talk about some of the types of uh, supporting documentation that people can include. Tyra, you mentioned a letter from the individual, but it can also be uh, court documents. It can be behavior intervention plans, functional behavior assessment documents. It can also be things like we've seen text messages or email correspondence. It's really important that when you are submitting those types of documents that you redact any personally identifying information um, to maintain HIPAA compliance. Got that. So just to summarize, if I were getting ready to submit a notice, I would gather all of my document. Well, I would use that lovely considerations for submitting a notice document to kind of guide me through the process and all of the visuals and flowcharts that are available on the website. And then I would gather all my supporting documentation. I would make sure that any um, protected information was redacted. And then I would package it all up. I would fill out the form and there's an option for me at the end of the form to upload that document all at once. And then I'm assuming that I would hear back from the BACB. Yeah. So once the information is submitted, then the notifier will receive an auto message from the BACB saying that we have received all of the documents. And then I think someone actually will email as well, right? Another follow-up saying, we've got your notice. Someone will reach out to you. Exactly. Perfect. So we covered self-reporting, we covered how to submit a notice if you had publicly documented information, and that's an anonymous option, and then we covered submitting um, a notice against an RBT or a BCBA or BCABA, and we talked a little bit about due process. There are two other ways that people can get information to the BACB when they have a concern that are kind of important to talk about. Um, and they're not, I think, as well known. So there may be an instance where you think someone is misusing the BACB's intellectual property. They're misusing our logo. Um, they're using maybe Behavior Analyst Certification Board in their URL name or something like that. There is an option to report that through the Terms of Use page because we do owe a duty to protect our intellectual property. And if we don't, take those things seriously and take action and ask people to fix instances where they're misusing, we run the risk of giving up some of our rights to our intellectual property. The other thing that sometimes happens, listeners, you might be shocked to know that sometimes people who are not certified hold themselves out to be certified. So I'm not a, be I'm not a board certified behavior analyst, but I am saying I am on my website or I'm telling people that I am, or I'm even falsifying a certification and trying to be able to practice and bill. In those instances, um, folks can certainly report to us through the ethics webpage and if the BACB makes, um, well, the BACB will always make attempts to 
inform individuals that they need to cease and desist misrepresenting themselves. However, there are instances where we reach out in multiple ways. We email, we call, we snail mail, and individuals still don't respond to us or they don't fix the problem. And in those instances, we actually can publish the person's information on the falsified credential page on the BACB's website. And so if you know that someone or suspect that someone is misrepresenting themselves, there's a spot there where you can um, report infringement or misuse of certification. So that's really important for folks to help us to ensure consumer protection. Um, So, okay, we talked all about how people can get information to us. I think it is important to talk about what happens once we get a notice of alleged violation. And I'm just going to very briefly describe that process because then I want to jump into each of your systems, Sarah and Holly. So when we receive a notice, the first thing that happens, it's it's reviewed for what's kind of called fitness. Um, it We check to make sure we have jurisdiction over the individuals. We check that the allegation actually is something included in our code because sometimes we get allegations of things that we don't really have jurisdiction over or aren't included in our code. Um, and sometimes we get submissions with no supporting documentation. And we can't do anything. We're not an investigatory body. So we can't do anything if we don't get documentation with the notice of alleged violation. So all of those things are checked. And then if 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 there's an issue there, then the notice would be declined. So let's say someone submits a notice against an individual who is just accruing their fieldwork experience hours, but isn't a paid applicant and isn't a certificate at any level. We don't have jurisdiction. We would decline that notice. We would inform the notifier that it had been declined. There may be instances where someone tells us about an alleged violation and also indicates that they have either filed a complaint with the state licensure board, um, maybe completed a police report, maybe there's an open lawsuit. In those instances, we often will place that notice on what's called a waiting third party determination. We'll contact the notifier and we'll ask them to share information with us as they receive it from that other organization, body, agency, what have you. Um, And then we also will calendar some reminder times for us to check in with the notifier and ask them if they have any updates, at which point then we can move forward with the case. Now, there are instances where we don't put things on a waiting third party, obviously, if there's a significant risk to consumers and we need to do something right away. Um, And then the other option is that if we do have jurisdiction, everything is fit, and we don't want to place something on a awaiting third party, then what we'll do is reach out to the subject, share all of the information as part of due process, give them an opportunity to respond. That's the point at which um, all of the information is packaged up, and that case is sent to what's called a routing meeting. Um, and I am not actually involved in routing meetings, but um, we're lucky that Holly is here, and she is. So Holly, you can talk a little bit about what happens at routing meetings. Sure. So during the routing meetings, we take a look at the case as a whole. So we review the notice of alleged violation and we review the information or documentation that was submitted by the subject um, through their opportunity to respond. And we determine whether or not that particular case uh, should needs to be declined for some reason or if it should be routed to educational or disciplinary. And so there are 
there's more than one person obviously involved in that decision-making process. Um, and you mentioned that you may decline. So I think that's a really good point because we often decline notices earlier on, but, um, because once we move forward, we do get information back from the subject. There are instances where a case might be declined at that point and not move forward. Correct. Exactly. And at that point, um, what do you do when you're declining? Who, like, who do you contact? Who gets information? So both the notifier and the subject would receive information about that. Great. So they both get some kind of communication saying, hey, we're not moving forward with this. Exactly. Perfect. Um, So Sarah, let's talk a little bit about when cases get routed to the educational system, um, because it's a really exciting piece of the ethics department that isn't really available in the way the BACB has it set up in a lot of other professions. So can you talk a little bit about your um, your system in general, and then maybe you can just talk through sort of the different options that come out of your system? Sure, I can definitely do that. So the overall goal of the educational system is to provide an educational opportunity (laughs) for our certificates. And what we want to do is make sure that we are preventing the likelihood of future ethical violations. So a lot of our field is really new. A lot of us have passed the exam in the past five years. and Actually, 50% since 2016. So in the last three Three years. years. (laughs) Yes. That's crazy. It's yes. And so um, there's a lot of BCBAs that are new and have had some great training, but it's impossible to learn everything in school and even during your supervision hours. So one part of the educational system or one goal is to make sure that we're supporting our field um, and making sure that people are able to uphold the ethics requirements and continue to protect our consumers through the services they're providing. So basically the idea is that there may be instances where the violation is related to someone maybe not having had the opportunity to learn a particular process or procedure Mm -hmm. or problem solving approach that may have avoided the violation in the first place. Exactly. So uh, cases that come through the educational system, they can't have come through uh, either system before, so disciplinary or educational. Um, It it's not going to be something that's very egregious, um, but really in in the routing meeting, they make the determination that it looks like this certificate could use some support. So there's two different routes in the educational system. Um, one is an educational memoranda. So this could be anything uh, like just a, hey, we got this notice. Uh, this is what happened. It could have been a potential violation. Here are some things you could do in the future to make sure you don't violate the ethics code. So that's actually a really good clarification. Are you saying that if a case gets routed through the educational system, there is not any kind of review and determination that a violation actually occurred? That's a great question. Yeah. So we're not reviewing um, or the notice of alleged violation is not being reviewed at that point. Once it's in the educational system, what we're looking for to is behavior change for the future um, and taking a uh, functional behavior approach. (laughs) So then if someone gets routed through the educational system, that's not considered disciplinary action. That's not something that they have to then report the next time, for example, they go to recertify or if they were applying for licensure in another state, they wouldn't have to say, I've had a disciplinary action because that's not what it's considered. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you said one option is educational memoranda, which is sort of like, mm-hmm. here are some suggestions, maybe your recommendations and make sure that you kind of strive to 
do better in the future. Yeah. Okay. Um, it could also, an, another type of memorandum that could be received would be a notice of required action. So that's when there's something specific that we need to see changed. One example that might come up is testimonials on a website. It might be that this website includes testimonials that inc don't include the disclaimer that's listed in the code, mm -hmm. or maybe it's not clear if the clients are past clients, they could be current clients. So we may send a notice of required action requiring that uh, BCBA or BCABA to make sure that those pieces are included on the website and that's changed and they have to submit proof that that's been updated. Hey, Sarah. So you mentioned that this would be for a BCABA or a BCBA for the notice of required action. But what if the individual was an RBT? That's an excellent question because we have a lot of those. So with a notice of required RBT action, also Anora with just an extra R, in this case, a lot of times um, what we see come through are things that really need to be addressed by a supervisor and better addressed by the person that's requirements coordinator or just RBT supervisor that's listed in the registry. And so in this case, the RBT will receive a letter stating what the potential violation was um, identified in the notice or violations, and then some specifications that they have to share the notice and the document sent by the ethics department with their current supervisor, um, or if they are no longer with that organization, with their next supervisor in order to be able to practice. And there may be certain specifications. Maybe they have to receive supervision on a certain type of behavior change procedure or on uh, protecting client information um, or something along those lines. Does the RBT supervisor or requirements coordinator in those instances need to do anything? Like in other words, if I'm an RBT and I get one of those and I share it with Holly, who's my supervisor, does she have to do anything? Does she have to send anything back to the BACB? Yeah. So um, it's stated in the uh, notice of required RBT action that there's a certain amount of time by which the um, RBT supervisor or requirements coordinator has to submit verification that they've reviewed both the notice of alleged violation as well as the notice of required RBT action. Uh, it's a mouthful. And then if there's additional requirements such as um, additional supervision, uh, that will be stated specifically in the notice of uh, required RBT action of what to submit and when to submit it. Great. Okay. So that, <laughs> so that covers all, sort of a bunch of the different iterations of memoranda that might go out. That's mm -hmm. sort of putting people on notice that they have, they likely have well, Dr. Carr likes to say instances where people are susceptible to improvement. And so I love that uh, the ethics department has an opportunity to put people on notice that there are things that they might want to be thinking about doing differently. And for RBTs, I think it's it's quite fantastic to have a system that incorporates their supervisor because it may be the case that the supervisor needs to also make some improvements as well. Exactly. Uh, so that was all of one half, like you said. Okay. The other half is voluntary coaching. Um, so this is my favorite half. <laughs> Not that you should have favorites. But in voluntary coaching, this provides the opportunity for the BCBA or BCABA in the uh, noted as the subject in the notice of alleged violation to have an opportunity to meet with a coach who's a behavior analyst in our field uh, with a significant amount of experience, um, specifically with the ethics requirements. And so it, as part of the coaching process, tasks will be assigned either by the coach or by a member of the educational team that will directly 
correlate with the notice of alleged violation. For example, if uh, the notice is regarding um, inappropriate transition of a client, there may be tasks regarding a policy and procedure related to all the steps required for transitioning a client. And then the certificate will complete those specific tasks and have the opportunity to meet with a coach to um, discuss them and receive some feedback and be able to hopefully implement that into practice in the future as an intervention to prevent potential violations in the future. So these are meetings that the subject gets to have with an expert in our field via teleconference or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And so it could be anywhere from one meeting to to multiple, depending on the number of tasks that are assigned. In some cases, there may be the opportunity even for the certificate to identify some tasks that would be helpful for them in the future. They may identify some areas that their organization could have additional supports in place to prevent future issues. And that's not a process that's available in a lot of other professions at least to my knowledge. Is that true? As far as I'm aware, it's pretty unique to us. Look at us taking a behavior analytic approach to (laughs) trying to address uh, needs around people's behavior and complying with ethics requirements. That's pretty cool. I'd agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else that you want to share about the educational department? No, I've got nothing to add. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I'm going to put you back on the spot because I'm going to ask you, um, do you perceive in the near future, let's say in the next year, that your system will result in some benefits to people who don't come through your system? In other words, is it possible that there might be some cool stuff that will be available to all certificants? Yeah, we have a lot of data on what the most frequent code violations are and areas where it looks like more education and more information will be helpful. So one goal of the educational system is to help um, start providing like resources resources <laughs> to be able to help behavior analysts. We know it's it can be a tough job. There's a lot of competing contingencies to be successful. And so we want to help. And we know that a lot of people are really new. So um, we want to make sure that we're helping people uh, provide high quality services and also be able to meet the ethics requirements at the same time. Awesome. So listeners, keep an eye out for fantastic resources coming down the line in the next, I don't know, year or so. Holly, how about the disciplinary system? I I know it's um, it includes both disciplinary review as well as appeal process. So can you tell us a little bit about what happens when, when a case does get routed to disciplinary? Sure. But before I go into the specifics of what those... Uh, look like, I want to highlight that in keeping with the spirit of taking a functional behavior analytic (laughs) approach to all of this, even though it's called disciplinary, we really do try to also provide educational and learning opportunities to individuals who come through that system. And please also keep in mind that by the time a case goes to disciplinary, the subject has had the opportunity to respond. But Typically, these violations are a little more egregious in nature. And so, as Tyra, you mentioned before, consumer protection is really at the forefront of our mission as the ethics department. So we take that very seriously, but also really try to provide those learning opportunities. Sure. Um, Cases that make it into your system, those are cases that are more related to physical harm to clients, billing fraud 
falsified data, serious misuse of things like punishment procedures. So we're talking cases that involve much more serious risk in terms of degree of harm and scope of harm, correct? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So what happens when it is determined that a notice is going to move forward to disciplinary is that it gets reviewed by a disciplinary review committee. And so that committee will first determine whether or not they believe that there is an actual violation that has occurred and what consequences might be most appropriate for that particular violation. Once that is determined, then the subject will be notified of that determination and in alignment with due process, they will have the opportunity to appeal that determination. Holly, can I stop you? Um, and let's just circle back to yeah. if a violation is found. So it is possible that a review committee could find no violation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But if a violation was found and consequences are um, levied against an individual, there are two types of consequences. There are corrective actions and there are sanctions. Can you just talk a little bit about the difference between the two and maybe give a few examples? Yeah, so sanctions are consequences that would be publishable on our registry. And so those would include things like revocation of certification, suspension of the certification, or mandatory supervision. And you mentioned those are published on the website? Yes. So when you go to the BACB registry and search for a certificate, you would find on there that they do have a publishable sanction. So I just want to pause there and... Clarify that for listeners, because this is a really powerful tool that folks can use if you are looking for a supervisor, if you are considering supervising someone who has a certification level already below the one that they're looking to have you supervise them for, if you are a funding source, if you are a parent, if you are in an educational program um, and you are looking to have BCBAs come in to work in your educational program, maybe you're a school district employee or something, you can go to the registry, you can put in someone's last name, you can find them, and you can see if they have a current published sanction against them. Now, that wouldn't be the case if it was just a corrective action, but if the if the violation rose to the level that there was serious concern and a sanction was... Um, a sanction was determined appropriate, it would be published. And so that's really huge in terms of consumer protection. Absolutely. And that information is publicly available. So like you mentioned, if you are a parent or an employer, so someone that is not a current certificate, you can still access that information. So you, we covered sanctions. But there's the second group of possible consequences under that are considered or called corrective actions. Those are not published on the website. And can you describe some of those? Right. So a corrective action, like you said, is not published on the website. And it includes some sort of remediation or demonstration that you have rectified the the situation or you have addressed it in some way. For example, if the violation was related to improper transition of a client or termination of services without appropriate transition, then 
a corrective action might be to produce a policy and procedure document that outlines your process for appropriately transitioning a client. Are there other corrective actions uh, that are sort of more about gaining education? Yeah. So we also have uh, where you may be required to write a paper that reflects or addresses the issue in some way. And another one that is really cool is what we call mandatory mentorship. So with and that should be distinguished from the mandatory supervision. Mm-hmm. Mandatory supervision is a publishable sanction. Mandatory mentorship is not a publishable sanction. It's a corrective action. And the idea behind that is that if the committee, the review committee, feels that that individual may benefit from some mentorship, some coaching, then we would require that they obtain mentorship. And the the primary distinction is that the committee doesn't feel as though it it rises to the level of a sanction where it would be published, but that there would still be a lot of benefit in having that same sort of scenario where it serves essentially the same function. Right. So an opportunity maybe for a shorter period of time, but to access someone who has some expertise in that area to bounce some ideas off of or help develop some policies or procedures to prevent that violation from occurring in the future. Right. Exactly. Perfect. And then what about continuing education units or having to take a college course? Yep. So another Potential corrective action could be continuing education credits that are related to the violation in some way, or perhaps taking a university course that relates to the particular violation, or sometimes just like a university course in ethics specifically. Cool. Thanks for reviewing those for me. Um, So you said that if there was a violation found that the subject would be notified. Um, so your, your system would send out a disciplinary determination. It would outline everything. What happens then? So then the individual, the subject of the notice, has the opportunity to appeal that decision. And if they decide that they want to appeal, they will have some more information that they would need to submit to us including if there's any other documentation that they did not have available during their opportunity to respond that might um, change the the direction of the determination in some way, then they have the opportunity to submit that. And then from there, there will be a disciplinary appeal review that will occur. And that committee is a separate committee from the committee that heard the original case. And then that committee will review the appeal documentation. They will also have access to the original case documentation as well. So they'll be reviewing everything in its entirety. And they will determine whether or not they want to uphold the original decision that was made by the by the review committee or if they want to modify it in some way. So in some cases, it could potentially be overturned if this new evidence Um, supports that, or they may decide to make modifications to the consequences that were assigned. Um, Another situation might be if they find, if there were multiple violations within that one notice, they may overturn some of the violations, but not all of them. And just 
so that everyone's aware, if there is an appeal and the committee decides to modify the consequences in some way, it's never to the point where it's going to be more uh, serious consequences than what was originally prescribed. So we don't want to necessarily deter people from appealing, thinking that it could get worse for them. Uh, The only modifications that can be made are to reduce the consequences in some way. So the appeal committee couldn't find a new violation or increase or add any of the consequences at all, right? Right, exactly. Got it. So I heard a couple of key pieces that I just want to summarize. And in All individuals have a right to appeal. That's part of due process. They would do so by submitting documentation, some sort of written description of why they're appealing the decision. And hopefully they would have some specific tangible reason why they're appealing. For example, I didn't have access to this video or this report or this email at the time of the review, but now I have access to it and it clearly shows that I didn't violate things. That gets submitted, all of that gets reviewed, then a new determination gets made where either things are upheld or maybe modified or maybe overturned, and then everybody gets notified after the case. Yep, exactly. Perfect. You've got it. (laughs) It's like you know this. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, so at this point, we've kind of reviewed the purpose of the ethics department, which is essentially to um, allow the BACB to realize a large piece of the consumer protection mission, um, as well as to protect certificates and other individuals. We talked a little bit about how people can get information to us when they're concerned about a violation. We talked about what happens when we get a notice. We talked about the educational system. We talked about the disciplinary system. I wonder if you each could share or if we could just discuss generally the most common code violations that um, that the ethics department sees. You know there's a white paper submit, um, that's been published on the website, and then there was a recent update um, with the 2018 data in a a newsletter that just came out. Um, But what are the most common code areas that you all see um, currently? And maybe it's the same. Maybe it's what the white paper says and what the update said. Um, So I can report on specifically for the educational system. Um, But the most frequent code violations are um, within 2.0 and 5.0, respectively. Um, So In the 5.0 section, the most frequent violations were um, 5.06, which is providing feedback to supervisees, and 5.04, which is uh, designing effective supervision and training. And then within the 2.0 code section, uh, the most frequent was 2.15, which involves interruption and discontinuing services. Well, that's a great update from the common code violations that end up in your system, Sarah. What about disciplinary? So the most common ones usually have to do with multiple relationships. So that's the 1.06. But we also see, have historically seen a lot around 1.04, which has to do with integrity, and 5.0, which deals with supervision. One that we see more frequently lately is around 10.02, which is the self-reporting. So mainly that has to do with individuals who are not reporting in a timely manner when there is an investigation that's against them. Right. So 10.02 essentially says if someone has an investiga- a disciplinary investigation or disciplinary action or 
certain kinds of charges or physical or mental health condition that would impact their ability to provide services, then they need to let the BACB know about that. And that's common in helping profession fields to have that sort of self-reporting requirement. Um, I, when I take a look at the data, I also see an increase in violations around um, billing. For example, 2.13 and a few other codes around accuracy in billing um, or documentation. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I would definitely say that that's accurate, and especially with increases in both licensure and uh, insurance coverage around the United States, we are seeing an increase in in those violations as well. So I guess just to wrap up, um, I'd like to thank listeners because this was a little bit of a longer podcast but it did provide us an opportunity to share information that is kind of embedded in the website. It's embedded in the code. It's embedded in the code enforcement procedure document, which lives on the ethics webpage, uh, and explain a little bit about what we do within the ethics department. Um, clarify that there are three BCBADs currently working within the ethics department, myself as the director, and then Sarah um, in the educational system and Holly in the disciplinary system, and then just kind of review things for everybody. So I think that we are likely to have some additional podcast topics coming out in the future that will be specific to um, different code areas. For example, we're likely to have some information come out around 7.02 requirements that you should address potential or alleged violations with the individual directly. Um, I'm assuming that we're going to plan to have some podcasts around those most common code violations like 2.15, around transitioning and um, discharging slash abandoning clients, around supervision, potentially around billing. I think it would be pretty awesome to have some information out there around self-reporting so that folks understand the purpose of self-reporting and sort of understand what's going to happen when they do share information with the BACB. Um, so with that, I think we should all just say thank you and goodbye to all of the listeners. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Inside the BACB. Don't miss future episodes. Subscribe now.